You're listening to Positivity Strategist. Welcome to our third season, where I'll be focusing on leaders and leading in an appreciative and positive way across a range of industries and professions. What does it mean? How do they do it? What results do they achieve for their people, their organizations, and their own careers? How do they inspire? This is Robin Stratton Burkessel. And before I jump into this episode with my guest, I have a short announcement. Today's show is the ninth in this season on the topic of appreciative leading. And there are three more shows to go before I close out this season and begin to regroup for season four. And I understand you've been enjoying the guests from what I'm hearing. And they have come from diverse backgrounds and geographies and disciplines and with different passions about their contributions to the world. And for this season, I personally invited each guest. I thought carefully about how I wanted to position the topic of appreciative leading. I wanted to widen the scope of this transformational change methodology appreciative inquiry to go beyond the usual suspects. And as I hear from many of you, dear listeners, you're finding value in this content and the stories my guests share. And I know that my guests also enjoy the opportunity to talk about what they're doing and how appreciative inquiry impacts them and their relationships and their work. Now, those of us who are practicing appreciative inquiry in our different fields become increasingly aware of its expansiveness and generativity as we do our work and as we embody this particular philosophy and way of being. It has so much to offer us in our rapidly changing world, as my guest Mike Echevarria will attest to today. With my fifth anniversary of podcasting coming up, Creating this podcast alone, I've reached a point where I know there's so much more that I could do with the podcast, and I want to. I have a vision that I keep evolving, and to, com- and to accomplish my vision, I really need help. So I want to up my game and take the podcast to the next level in professionalism. I aspire to national public radio standards, and they have vast research and production crews and technical resources. It's unlikely that I'll attain that standard, but I can invest more in my current show as it evolves and grows. And unless I can do that, I'm going to be shifting my focus. So during this season, I've invited you to consider becoming a patron or a sponsor of the show to bring more resources in terms of research and production, marketing, and more. And I'm very happy to say that so far I have attracted two patrons, and I'm most grateful to Johannes and to Trish. If this content for the last five years has served you and you'd like to see it continue, please visit my Patreon page, and that's positivitystrategist.com slash Patreon, and Patreon is spelt with an E, so it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and there you'll find out who, how you might become engaged. 
And I'm curious to know what ideas do you have about elevating the intention and the reach of this podcast? What inspirations can you offer? And can you support? If you can support, please be in touch. And by the way, if you want to create your own podcast, also be in touch. I can help you with that too. So that concludes my announcement to start the show. And now I invite you to please enjoy this conversation with my guest today, Mike, on the topic of appreciative leading. And today my conversation is with a gentleman whom I've known just a short time. I've invited him to my show as he's an an excellent example of appreciative leading. In the short time I've known him, I continue to discover more and more about his talents, his generosity, and his boundless curiosity and energy. So I'm really happy to introduce my special guest, Mike Echevarria. Thank you, Robin. It's a delight to be with you today. So let me say a little bit about Mike, and then we will get into our conversation. Mike is an entrepreneur, an adventurer, and really passionate about life, the wholeness of life. Passionate about his work, his travels, and his hobbies, like diving, and that's diving with sharks. Passionate about underwater photography and flying, and making a positive impact in his community. Mike lives with his beautiful wife, Laurie, in Tampa, Florida, and they have two daughters, Emily and Christina. So, Mike, do your girls share any of your adventures with you? They do. Um, Their friends used to call me Adventure Dad, and so uh, (laughs) I took them both on trips when they were 13 internationally, took Emily to Spain, took Christina to Chile. Uh, I've taken them both shark diving. They, uh, I was their dive instructor and certified them. So uh, our family still dives together uh, in the Florida Keys, and we have other spots picked out to travel internationally. So it's our, still our biggest family hobby together. Although they're grown and independent young women out in the world, uh, we still enjoy time to share diving together. That's beautiful, Mike. Well, it's very special times. Mike and I met through our work and interest in the field of community and organization development and are actively leading and co-creating positive changes in our worlds. And it's the transformational change methodology appreciative inquiry that brought us together. And during the last year, we've attended a number of um, the same events across the US and we're blessed to have professional colleagues in common. And most serendipitously, we live in neighboring towns. That was a good find. Yes, we're, we're, I'm in your backyard or you're in mine. I'm not sure how we look at it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's lovely. A nice nice part of the world, Mike. Um, And Mike, I particularly wanted to have you on the show as I see that you are most definitely a true example of appreciative leading, which is the theme of this season, as you're aware And the initiative that you have invested in to bring a positive impact to your town, Tampa, is really appreciative leading in action. So I'd love it if you'd jump right in and talk to us about your dream for your city of Tampa. Like, um, you know, what was the impetus to do this? How did you start? Where's it going? How's it going? What positive impacts you're striving for? All that good stuff. Well, I would start with my interest in 
visioning and strategic planning for not-for-profit organizations where I was when I found Appreciative Inquiry. Uh, and in finding that, I went up to Case Western and got my certification in Appreciative Inquiry, but of course met David Cooperider and learned about the project that they did in Cleveland that they now call Sustainable Cleveland 2019. And my mind said, how, how might it look to apply the AI methodology to my hometown, Tampa? And so I started probably four years ago with a series of conversations. What might it look like? How might we do it? And today we are 30 days post uh, steering committee on the project and involving a host of new people to the project and really introducing appreciative inquiry as a methodology to a community building platform here in our community. Yeah, so just give us a, a sense of who are the people that you're engaging? You know, who's important to be at the table, so to speak? Well, everybody is important to be at the table because, again, we've thrown a big net. We don't have a very narrow focus about what we want. And so being true to the process, we are in the discovery phase about what our community is most proud of. What are our success factors? What do we want to see more of? What do we want to keep? Uh, in a continuity to the current best things about our community? And then what are we looking for as a vision, uh, a long-term shared vision where we might be going together? And the people that we recruited in that process, generally I've defined as servant leaders, people that uh, are willing to serve their community without looking for anything back. Um, and we, we've, the core has started, um, and we're going to continue to go do that because, again, as you may know in doing these projects, it's very difficult in the beginning when you don't know the topic. We, don't, we still don't exactly know the topic. We just know the process that we're using, and the discovery and dream phases are helping us determine what it is that we see most for our community as far as the topic and the objectives of the summit that we're planning for November. Yeah, and so what what has kind of come to light already in terms of where you're finding um, maybe not the greatest energy but a lot of en energy around some of the issues or initiatives or dreams, the aspirations that people have for the city? Well, we've done about 100 interviews uh, just to kind of give us a high-level theming, and I was really encouraged to – here, uh, some of the validation of what I believe about it, the Tampa is a very welcoming community. Uh, there's a lot of people that grew up here like I did, but also a lot of people that have moved here uh, over the years and also recently. And Tampa, you can come to Tampa and become part of this community if you want to. There's no barriers to entry uh, socially or economically or, or racially. And so if you want to come and be part of the Tampa community, it's possible uh, around that, there's a number of opportunities, including transportation, education, affordable housing, um, not-for-profits working in a more collaborative fashion. Uh, there's a number of things that are emerging as opportunity areas or themes that a summit might produce work groups around. So what's your sense about where you're headed right now. What's next on the horizon leading up to November? I'd love you to talk about where you are in that process. So, um, frankly, it's a little messy right now. You know how that goes, Robin, that uh, we had a, a lot of 
strangers, if you will. They're part of the same community, but they didn't know each other from a lot of diverse backgrounds come together for the first time to one meet, uh, decide to work together and then to go to work. So we're spending a lot of time right now building out the work group committee infrastructures and accountabilities. Um, the main task right now is the task work group is going to set the, the task and the objectives for the summit. Um, they have a draft uh, in the next few weeks. They will be putting that together. They're working with a marketing firm to be able to frame a, an inspiring topic for the summit a theme for the summit, but also the objectives that we want to accomplish before we can start to work with the other work group, which is a stakeholder work group to figure out who needs to be in the room to make that work effective. So deciding what the system is, and the system generally right now is the community of Tampa and its surrounding immediate neighbors, and asking those kinds of questions, again, what, what do we think the energy is around in the work. And clearly the ones I talked about so far are on there. But again, as the leader, you know, we don't want to shut down possibilities. And so we keep opening it up to have conversation about what it might look like. I spoke with a band today who did a project in Houston where they put at-risk youth together with law enforcement officers in almost a uh, connection-yielding uh, project with 12 weeks of training that built a lot of rapport between law enforcement and at-risk youth. I talked to him about maybe bringing that idea into the project. So again, there's no limitation on what we're going to bring. It's where the energy energy forms and what might best be um, the vehicles for where people are going to get behind and want to put their time. It's not just 51% we've got to create. It's an 80 or 90% momentum to really make these projects happen. Mm. Yeah. And Mike, how how attached are you to this? Well, I think as a human being, I'm attached to it, but I keep reminding myself that I'm just responsible for the process. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly having to make sure that I don't prejudge the outcome of a meeting or of a conversation, but that I do bring the things that I'm hearing from others up to the surface for conversation and for discussion. So um, I believe that I am most effective when I focus on the process and not on the outcome and give everybody the voice to be appreciated and to be heard. That will make the result, whatever it happens, to be better. Hmm. Yeah, appreciative leading in my words. <laughs> um, so, Mike, um, perhaps you can share with us what was it particularly about AI that resonated with you, you know, appreciative inquiry that resonated with you to make this big investment, commit so far four years of your life to this, and then in this open-ended possibility of what may emerge? I would say that you know, throughout my career, and I was a practicing lawyer for almost 30 years, and I ran a law firm that we did traditional planning where the executive committee would meet, you know, every August and come up with the themes and the goals for the following year and start a communication program that the departments would come up with their plan. And that by the end of the day, you massage the plan and a budget that became the operating platform for the next year. But there was a great deal of effort in selling 
about why what you were doing was good for the firm, good for the department, good for the individual employee. And when I saw appreciative inquiry and the methodology that would say, bring them all into the room at the same time and create the plan. I, I was floored by the concept of how many weeks and months of my life I spent selling a, a program. And I just watched the engagement people get for being involved in the planning session, the appreciative side of this, creating the discovery, the dreaming, the designing, the deployment. Their engagement uh, in a project is far better than I ever received. And I just said, Duh, why didn't I do this before? So as soon as I saw it, uh, I immediately moved to that methodology and been using it ever since. Yeah. And so I'm curious, were there any influences um, in your earlier life that may have hinted that you would pivot and that you'd be standing up wanting to serve your community in this way? And you've used the, the phrase before, servant leader, you're you're attracting people who have this predisposition to serve. So what was it about your upbringing perhaps that influenced you in this way? Uh, my father is a first-generation American th from a Spanish immigrant community, and um, he and several of his close friends and mentors of mine really modeled that servant leadership in that community early on. You know, my father mm -hmm. was a, a surgeon and a physician, and uh, was very helpful in all aspects of working in the community. And uh, other other gentlemen were lawyers that did that. And they just was really this overwhelming feeling to, uh, if you received a benefit, to pass it on. Um, it was far before the movie about pay it forward. It really was about passing on whatever benefit is. And one of my mentors said, whenever you're climbing the ladder, always reach down and pull up the next one with you. So mm -hmm. I, I had some very strong role models that actually did that in my youth that modeled that behavior. So it wasn't hard for me to see the value in that and continue where I could in that tradition. Mm. Yeah. And so was there a sense of community around you that you felt supported and you were serving each other? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That clearly is the, uh, Again, in an immigrant community in a foreign country, there's a lot of that sticking together to be able to go do that. So I would say that the sense of community was uh, was very strong. And, you know, my, my dad and my family were right in the middle of that. Mm, yeah. So what made you go into law? I like to argue with my father. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually studied to bring a marine biologist. Um, I, my, my, ah. my passion for the sea started when I was uh, young. I got certified to scuba dive at 16, um, and I went on and intended to get a, a become a, a, a biologist. Um, calculus changed my mind. Um, <laughs> calculus is the language of science, and my brain is not mathematical. And I really realized that I did far better in subjects that didn't have one right answer. Um, I remember vividly arguing with my GenX professor about my answer, which was wrong, that it was right. Mm -hmm. uh, and I argued uh, to no avail, but nonetheless, I argued. And so uh, decided, uh, although I did get my degree in biology with a minor in chemistry, I decided that it was probably best for my strengths uh, to go into law, which I found law school, frankly, easier than undergraduate school. So it was understanding what my skills were, what my talents were and moving in that direction. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, how might you reframe 
argumentative. I'm just thinking of that as you were speaking. Passionate. Yes. And I'm also thinking, and you touched on this before, um, something about, um, you know, if we were to reframe this in a, in a more appreciative lens, it would be more, I would think more about valuing all the different perspectives that you can bring. Um, and I don't know whether that's true in law. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not a good example. Um, but when you talk about arguing with your father and, you know, and, 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 you know, having these conversations with your professor, I'm just wondering if it's about the love of being able to listen to and contribute to and, you know, just grow the intelligence, if you will, by virtue of all these different perspectives coming out and expressing themselves. Well, in the law, the belief is in our adversarial process that the process will yield the truth. Uh, and so they're just different perspectives in our U.S. system. There's two sides as opposed to more. Reality is there's, there's a whole palette of different perspectives that one might bring to any situation. Um, but actually, it was moving away from the advocacy of being a lawyer that helped this, as far as my community development, about being more true to a, a process for the group than it was me having a position. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Good. Great. And so in describing your leading, or I'm describing your leading um, in an appreciative way, and I say that you're an example to me of appreciative leading, what does that mean to you? Well, it, I believe it means that uh, I can value the best of what is uh, in people and places and in organizations and, and look for what they have to contribute. Everybody has, I believe, the desire to contribute. And it's just finding the way that that voice can be expressed. Uh, It's working with people to find out what makes them most excited and engaged about any particular area they want to work on and to be able to make sure that their work is aligned with that. Um, I also think it's ability to go back and uh, have some vision about what the outcome might look like and that it would take a, uh, a number of people to come together to create that vision to make it come true. The visioning p- part of that process, I believe, is really taking what's best and what might be uh, and working towards that idealized future, given it be in a, in a couple, in a family, in a business, or in a community. Mm, yeah, and I'm aware through some of our conversations, Mike, that you um, you work with or you're associated with or you're on a number of boards, and you're um, you're wanting to bring this appreciative lens, this this appreciative perspective to those boards. How's that going? Say a little bit about that for us. Well, I think it's it's almost ideal for those boards, especially in volunteer boards that. You know, uh, the first real application I used, I sat in a board meeting and to the lament of the board members, they wanted to get rid of the deadwood. How do we how do we fire the board members that aren't working? Uh, I had just started my training in appreciative inquiry and I quickly reframed that statement and put it on steroids and created we created a sore session uh, that was how do we create highly energized and engaged board members? So we started asking different questions and we asked those board members who are excited and energized by their board work, 
Why was that? What did they do? How did they do it? What was their view of the world? And learn some very fascinating things about how people work. And one of the most important things that I learned that I use everywhere I go now is everyone has to have a responsibility. And if they don't, they float. Uh, if you, you're not on a committee, you're not, don't have a project, you don't have a reason to be on that board, it's easy to not be engaged. So uh, in my service as chairman of boards, I've always gone out and made sure that we didn't bring someone onto a board that didn't have a skill set where they could contribute, where they wanted to contribute, and that they would make the overall organization better because then I was denying them the opportunity to have a rewarding experience. Because again, studying success, the people that enjoyed it the most had a responsibility. They had their part of the world that they owned, be it a committee, uh, be it a project, um, be it simply they might be a docent. I just interviewed somebody who was proud of their work, not only as a board member, but they also taught uh, visitor groups at a, at a given uh, attraction. So I think that that really is important, but it's also to be able to get full engagement and get everybody talking, everybody's ideas, and to be sure that all the strengths of the various people on a board are brought to best light and utilized for the success of the organization. Yeah, you raise some really significant things there. You know, like being engaged often means that you're working to your strengths, that you're believing in the purpose and the meaning and the mission is that important? I mean, how much, because I'm thinking of volunteer boards, how important is, you know, believing in that mission? Well, I think it's critical. Uh, mm. and, I, and I would go as far as, and I usually start with vision, mission, values, and then what the objectives are. Mm. Um, and there has to be alignment. And what I've learned in my experience, and I tend to have served in environmental organizations that did more around animals and fish and, and aquariums and such. Um, those aren't the same people that want to be involved in children's education projects. Uh, there may be an overlap, but generally they tend to be very distinct passions. And the goal would be not only with donors and, and uh, members of an organization, you want the board members to get the same experience, that they're passionate about the subject matter and that they have a place to be able to fill, fill that. If in fact they aren't, you probably are doing both the individual and the organization disservice by creating a mismatch. Yeah. I mean, I think that my sense is that goes beyond these volunteer groups too. It's like, you know, how you become engaged in the workplace that you're working in, unless you can really buy into what the mission of the organization, you know, what they stand for and what the purpose is, you're likely to feel disengaged. I think um, the principles uh, are, are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Um, with the volunteers, it's a little more challenging, but you really have to get them passionate. You know, you're giving up their time and there's no benefit back uh, in that. But I, I do think that the same principles that you would have uh, in, a, in a volunteer board work in a regular organization, yeah, the, people have got to have meaning. They've got to know why they're there. They, they want to know why they're contributing to the betterment of the organization. And I think that with, a, with appreciative leading, you also want them to think that they're working to make the world better as well. So mm. tying that business purpose to having a purpose that makes their city, community, state, uh, country, uh, whatever it is, better for the fact that that organization provides value uh, is it, you're giving them a reason to come to work and a, a reason to feel good about work. 
Hmm. So, Mike, as a leader across a variety of different contexts, um, how I'm just curious, how might you have bought appreciative inquiry in the early days? And let me say, you know, there's a deliberate intention behind my question, which I'm not framing particularly well. And that is, um, I have this view that you actually, it's, uh, you can't sell AI, you can't sell appreciative inquiry. I think people have to experience it or engage it. And so I'm wondering, you know, as you're talking to some very influential people in your Tampa project, you know, the summit for your city, what kind of response are you getting or how are you being very effective in, and I'm using air quotes here, in influencing or selling people on this concept? Well, the first thing is I'm not selling it because uh, I don't think you can sell it. I think experiencing that. So I would say that initially, wherever I can, I begin any first meeting with an appreciative interview. Mm -hmm. So basically is if I met you for, for the very first time, I would ask you, I'm here on a project. Tell me about the best project you've ever been involved with. Um, what was that project? Uh, how did that occur? Uh, what were the success factors? How did it make you feel? What did you learn from that? And then how might you leverage that into the project that we're talking about? So it really is getting them to experience the positive reinforcement of bringing up those positive feelings to be able to go back and connect to, yes, there is an appreciative way to go do this, uh, and then leveraging that. And generally, I will tell them when I'm done that I just did it to you. <laughs> uh, you just experienced what an appreciative interview feels like. And that is generally how most summits, most sessions begin. Um, so I would say that that's part of it. The second part that we try to bring to our meetings is to try to create a high moment question to start the meeting, meaning what was the best thing that's happened on the project for you since the last time we met? And, and limit it to a, a one minute. I know that's a very common intervention. Actually doing it under crunch time is a little harder to go do, but it really does frame people and put them in an appreciative, positive framework for the rest of the meeting. That's beautiful, Mike. Yeah. And um, we know the effects of that, opening people up to positive emotions and all those beautiful things. So, Mike, um, you have a business in... Tampa called Positive Impact Force um, with your business partner, Sherry Sutton. And um, so I'd love you to say more about the name, the choice of the name Positive Impact Force. What does that mean? Well, part of that is, again, taking this work and actually going into businesses as a making the business a positive force um, for their employees employees' lives, but also for the business itself to obtain its objectives. But we also have this big part about being a value to the community. You know, the, the recent studies and data reflect that when you give someone a higher purpose, they perform at a higher level. So it's basically is, and, and force has a double entendre. Um, it's a force of people, but it's also a force of, 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 of energy that goes out there. So we try to bring that positive impact uh, to the people, to the people that we work with, to the people that we are serving, but also uh, by gathering a group of people that make a positive impact in their communities as well. 
Mm, lovely. And so the synergy between the summit that you're doing for Tampa and how is that fitting with your business vision? You know, what's the synergy between two, if there is one? I think that uh, Positive Impact Force is managing the project. Sherry is our project manager. Uh, and it was built to do this. And I would argue successfully in my own mind, although that's lawyer talk, right? I would I would be able to create uh, perspectives on opportunities on why it was good for the community to be able to go do that. So, yes, that is the focus of it. Uh, we also are taking away the ability to create some training around how do you train other cities, other communities to do this project as well. So not only are we doing this one, we are studying it and we are documenting it so that we would be able to make another community far more effective based on the lessons that we learn on how they might apply this methodology to whether it be a community, a city, a state, a region. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yes, yeah, so um, lots of lots of data gathering and experiencing and experiential work that's going on. Absolutely, uh, I am learning a lot. <laughs> that's great. Well, I think that's one of your strengths, probably on, on continuous learning. From what I know about you, Curios- so, curiosity for sure. That's it. That's it, Mike. So I just want to say to um, to the listeners, Mike, that. Um, that this show um, is positivitystrategist.com slash PS114. And there people will be able to read show notes and find links to um, some of the stuff that you're doing and um, connections to you. And if they want to reach out to you and find out more about this wonderful work that you're doing um, in your community. And probably it's going to extend much wider. We do believe it'll be in the region. Uh, we, you know, we're starting in Tampa, and that's even using that word can be um, inaccurate. We're starting in this in this community of Tampa, but we ha- they're all connected to neighbors and into the Tampa Bay region. So we do believe that this is the start of a project that will have regional and potentially statewide application. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm very excited. It's been so much fun um, to talking to you today and learning more about it. And I'm looking forward to staying involved, Mike. So thank you for being a guest today. Again, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you have questions or ideas that you'd like to hear discussed on upcoming episodes and possibly participate in our show, go to positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast where you can submit your ideas or leave me a voicemail. I will respond. And also, if you appreciate this show, I'd love you to share that by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember, what you focus on grows, so grow towards your best.